The facts. In a talent market that is more competitive and less understood than any other time in history, it's the facts that matter. Welcome to Start Smart, the podcast that delivers the facts, the latest research and data on the key issues and opportunities facing talent acquisition and HR professionals. Welcome to the Start Smart Podcast. My name is Peter Weddle. I'm the CEO of TA Tech, and I'm really delighted to be the co-host for this podcast that focuses on talent acquisition research, the facts. I'd like to introduce my co-host, Shalila Gray. Shalila, say hello to the crowd, please. Hello, crowd. How are you doing? I'm Shalila Gray, and um, I'm based here in the U.S., and I say that because I'm the global leader for talent acquisition for Quadium, which is um, based in France. And I have a global responsibility. So I'm excited to be a part of this uh, this podcast and hope I can, we can impart some knowledge to you today. We also have a third member of our team, but unfortunately, she's under the weather, so she's not going to be joining us. But just to give her her due, Sarah White is the founder and CEO uh, of Aspect 43, an industry research company. So this podcast, Start Smart, is a little different from a lot of the other podcasts out there because, as I said earlier, it focuses on the latest research in talent acquisition, on the facts. But we're not going to just talk about the facts from a single perspective. Each of us, each of the three co-hosts, is going to take a, a different perspective. Shalila, of course, is going to talk about the research and facts from uh, the employer's perspective. Sarah is going to take a look at them from the analyst perspective, and I'll do my best to take a look at it from the solution provider's perspective. Now, for our first session, our first episode, we're going to focus on Corn Ferry's report, The Future of Work Trends 2022, which has the subtitle, The New Era of Humanity. Before we get started on talking about it, first, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Talent.com, the solution to finding talent your way. Work with the fast-growing, tech-savvy company dedicated to making the search for candidates easy. Are you looking to fill one job? How about a thousand jobs? Do you need a way to integrate your recruitment technology? Talent.com can find the answers for your business, and they can do it on time and on budget. Start growing with Talent.com. Okay, so as I said a little earlier, uh, Shalila and I are going to take a look at Corn Ferry's report, The Future of Work Trends 2022, The New Era of Humanity. It's a great report, and you can download it yourself at cornferry.com. The report takes a look at seven trends, reinvention, or what they call the flip side of disruption, scarcity, surviving the talent shortage, vitality, Employee well-being takes center stage. Sustainability, walk the talk for a more sustainable future. Individuality, employee experiences are personal. Inclusivity, unleashing the power of all. And accountability, which they describe as trust or bust. So obviously, there's a lot of content there, a lot of insights and wisdom to go through. 
we only have time to focus on three of them. We're going to take a look at scarcity, individuality, and inclusivity. So, Shalila, let's talk about scarcity first. They describe it again as surviving the talent shortage. And the data points that they mention, uh, one, for example, 74% of the professionals they surveyed think turnover is going to increase this year. So basically they're saying the great resignation is going to continue apace. Uh, And in fact, 36% of the folks that they surveyed say they plan to take another job themselves in the near future. But, you know, we've been talking about the war for talent since McKinsey coined the term back in the 1990s. Now, back then it was a quantitative struggle. Then it morphed into a qualitative struggle in the early 2000s. Is this this scarcity that we're experiencing today anything different or just another maybe short-term uptick in the war for talent? What do you think, Shalila? So I think this is a this is a change. So when you talk about the war for talent, you know, we talked about in in that work, we talked about the quality of hire. We talked about, you know, hiring for the best, all of that. This one's a little bit different because what the Corn Ferry report talks about is that mutual prosperity. So I think that um, the levers that get pulled this time are different. So the levers this time are really the candidate levers. Candidates are making themselves scarce in that uh, candidates have changed jobs. So our lower paying jobs, a lot of our customer service jobs, all those kind of jobs. Um, When COVID happened, people took new jobs when they came out of COVID. They went to the concept of compensation became more um, visible out there in the market. And so, and I believe that there are more startup businesses than we've ever seen before. So people have scattered and they're not in the same collective channels that we typically would go to find people. And then also, I think that our candidates and our employees are asking many different things from the organizations for them to enter into the work contract. So this leads into what you were talking about um, uh, in the report around uh, vitality, well-being, all of that. So I believe this scarcity is different because I believe it's driven by the talent market. It's not driven. It's not driven by the skill set that are out there. It's just people choosing to take different paths when it comes to work. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that there's some very uh, dynamic structural changes underway. The first, of course, is that huge numbers of women left the workforce uh, and without some significant changes in the enterprise with regard to uh, child care, elder care, and so forth, uh, I, I don't know that we're going to be anywhere near the kinds of levels of employment that we had pre-COVID in, in the near future. Uh, and second, there's been an increasing uh, amount of reporting around uh, millennials reevaluating what they want to get out of the world of work. And of course, as the baby boom generation begins to require, we were counting on those millennials to begin to move up in the, in the, uh, in the enterprise and fill those open positions. So this scarcity issue, I think, is, a, is indeed a, a long-term trend. And, and if that's so, what do you think we need to do about it? If, I, if I'm an employer and I'm looking to fill positions like yourself, what, what should we be doing? You know, there's a couple of things. So one, I think that we don't take advantage of all of our channels in the ways that we should. 
So first channel being the people that we have uh, in terms of internal mobility and thinking if we can stretch them in other assignments. I mean, there used to be a day and time when we did a lot more training of people and um, in promotions, internal moves was a lot different. I remember the days when I came through recruiting, there were a long time ago, where we didn't post a job external before we posted it internal. There was a separation there. We invested a little bit more internal. So that's one of the channels. The second channel is college recruiting. So there are some of us who've gotten it right and have hired thousands of college students and, and they built the infrastructure for that, the, the, the mobility, the training programs, the assimilation. They've looked at emerging talent. There's some of us who've got that channel right and there's many of us who really haven't tapped into that and looked at replacing our workforce over time. The other piece that's growing is the gig work. So, you know, when we think about the work that we do, I think there's always a question, and this is the TA responsibility, is that managers say, I need to get work done. To me, in a perfect world, then there's a, there's a series of questions. Is this a long-term job that has a place in our organization? If so, it's professional hire. Is this a project that needs to be done? Can we do it by a contractor? Is there another way? So I think that piece, that channel of gig work, it's taking off. You have so many more electronic platforms for gig work now. And the, um, the Biden administration legitimized gig work by making it a category for unemployment when you do gig work. So that's becoming, that's taking more traction. And then the other, the other uh, piece around the channels is you know how we treat people in each in each and all those roles. I mean that's coming up big time. When I looked at the data around why people were doing the Great Resignation, high up there was how people got treated in the organizations. And you would think, given that work is moving from um, in office, I've seen more jobs with hybrid now and remote, that you would have a larger uh, work pool to draw from. But I think no matter where you draw from today candidates and employees are asking the same question. What's in it for me? You know, uh, this is my career. This is about my family. Because you know what? You know, there were many people who were in their homes being, you know, spouses, school teachers. They couldn't go out and do a lot of things. They get creative, all that. And I think people now have seen their worth. And so I think that this scarcity, unless we figure out that there's different you know, levers to push. And it's not about money because many people have been saying, oh, because I've seen sign-on bonuses out there. I've seen people raise compensation. That holds people for a minute, but it's about the long the longevity of the experience I have that's going to keep people. Yeah, I think all of that is spot on. I'd also add that I think organizations would benefit from doing an audit of their talent acquisition strategy and practices. Uh, and that audit ought to begin by taking a look at their value proposition as an employer, because value propositions in recruiting sometimes tend to get static. You know, we use the same thing, same one over and over again. And in point of fact, the demographic that we're now going after in the workforce um, is different because of the changes that we talked about earlier. So you need to t make sure that your employer value proposition is up to date and properly targeted at uh, the workforce as it exists today. And then I'd, I'd take a look at uh, at least four or five different things. One, I'd, I'd make sure that, you know, you really have a strong recruitment marketing campaign underway and you're building on that uh, value proposition and a really strong employer brand 
there are a lot of recruitment marketing companies out there that that uh, you know can help with that. I'd also do a, a an audit of the company's career site. Uh, sometimes they get stale, um, and you know uh, make sure that it not only talks about the openings, but to to your point earlier talks about the culture of the organization and and what can uh, it provide to an individual, not just at the point of hire, but throughout their employment experience. Also want to make sure that the job postings that they're writing and posting on job boards or aggregators really have the kind of content that will appeal in today's job market. You mentioned hybrid kinds of work experiences. Uh, Certainly that's important. Uh, But it's also important to acknowledge that people in the job market today, particularly millennials, want to know that a company is a good corporate citizen, that they're paying attention to the world around them. So that ought to be a part of what's expressed in those job postings. And then finally, I think you want to make sure, to your point, that you look outside normal channels. Uh, For example, the National Trends and Disability Employment Organization Uh, I should say uh, the report that was just published found that people with disabilities have returned to pre-COVID employment levels faster than people without disabilities. So that particular cohort of the population is a wonderful uh, one for uh, sourcing candidates. Um, I would add to to your to your to your piece. I think you're you're very correct there. You know, we, we think about the candidate journey. I'm not giving a I'm not giving a, 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 a advertising spot for the Candy Awards when they were created. They did a very good job of looking at the pieces in the candidate experience that meant the most. And even if you don't compete for the Candy Awards, getting a copy of the criteria and looking at it and actually holding that up to your organization, because it walks through things like, you know, um, the candidate experience on the website. It talks about how do you communicate to candidates? How do they know where they are on the status? You know, all those kind of things. And it makes you go back and look at your process and, and, and think about how you can make it better. The other piece you talked about was job descriptions. And here's what I, I, you know, I'm always looking at the market to be competitive. I noticed that many more companies are now adding to their job descriptions what you can expect if you work for us. Uh, some even go through it like what you can expect in the first 30 days, whatever. They're also putting that piece about the value proposition. They're putting the culture out there. They're also putting their benefits out there, um, trying to become more, more competitive. And, you know, a trend is taking place in many of the states that they're now requiring you to put the compensation ranges on jobs. Um, you know, I remember when they used to be on all jobs, then we took them off all jobs and then states moved to you can't ask people what they're making. So then we moved to I can't ask you what we're making, what you're making, and you don't know what I'm paying. So we're in this dance together, not knowing where we're going. So um, states are kind of leveling the playing field by now asking people to um, to put those salary ranges there. So I think when you talk about the scarcity of talent, there's a lot of that. And also, I've read more statistics lately that people are also leaving off a degree requirement. For the first time, that degree requirement is becoming um, preferred, not required. Um, And that's changing because I think a lot of the tech firms, they realize that they didn't need it necessarily. And so they're kind of, you know, sometimes they leave the market in certain trends. Well, your reference to the candidate experience is a good segue to 
the next trend that we're going to talk about from the Corn Ferry Report, which is individuality, which they describe as employee experiences are personal. And one of the data points uh, in the report is that 89% of professionals feel they are suffering from burnout. Uh, 81% say that they are more burned out now than they were at the start of the pandemic. Close to home here in the, in the recruiting space, uh, I suspect that part of this lack of recruiters, part of the fact that recruiters are also checking out in large numbers, is due to the fact that all too frequently, they're required to fill 20, 30, 40 open recs all at the same time because, you know, pick whoever you want, the VP of HR, the CFO, the CEO, the board, they just think that recruiting is still as easy as fishing in a barrel. So here's my question. You know, a lot of employers are still struggling to get the candidate experience right. Do you think they're going to be able to do any better getting the employee experience right? What I'm going to say is that I've seen more tools and things out there now around mobility and onboarding than I've ever seen in the marketplace. So someone realizes that this is a space. So the mobility piece is around um, how do we, and so there you see that in that space, a lot more artificial intelligence being done, the chat bots, all of that to make experiences more, more individualized. Also to link them with the learning management systems, all of those kind of things to make it personalized, to recognize me when I come back to a site. So they realize if you can do that in the retail space, um, you can also do that in the recruiting space. You can make it a personalized experience because the more I connect with you, the more likely that I'm into a process with you. So that's 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 one piece of it. The the other piece of, around that is the onboarding. You know, most people, if they never remember anything, they remember their onboarding experience, right? So I remember every time I had a bad onboarding experience, I showed up without space, my equipment was a week late or all of that. And so people are now recognizing that the onboarding experience is your first way of saying welcome to the family and you want to make a good first impression. So as a result, I've seen more tools, more things around that onboarding experience to make it better. So that's a good thing that they realize that our internal employees, you know, matter in a different way. The employee experience can be mapped out the same way the the candies have mapped out the candidate experience. And the the employee experience is much more complex because there are many, many more touch points uh, internal to the organization. They do, in fact, begin with the onboarding experience, but um, everything, uh, every touch point that a new person has and then a uh, a an employee that's been around for a while has in the organization influences the way they think about the uh, the company as an employer or the organization as an employer. Um, and one of the comments that Corn Ferry makes in its uh, report is that what companies have to do now is deliver quote consumer grade employee experiences at work. That's interesting, you know, because we've now begun to talk about treating the candidate uh, the way we treat our customers. And so now we're thinking, well, maybe we ought to do the same for uh, for employees. In point of fact, I would argue that you want to treat all stakeholders in the organization as if they were very important guests or visitors or consumers, call them what you will. I agree. And I think that um, when we started in different parts of the world, we handled COVID differently. 
But in the most part, we all went home for a period of time. And when you, employees are not in the break room, they're not in the office, you can't gauge the morale to know what things need to happen. You don't. Um, people are on camera and people know they're on camera. So when they come on camera, that face comes on that you have on camera. So you don't know where people are. So I think many companies were doing like our company did. We did, you know, pulse surveys, all doing the engagement piece. We did inclusivity surveys. We talked about working from home. We did training sessions for managers about leading remote teams. There was a lot of emphasis put in there because we just didn't recognize how much we didn't know our employees till we couldn't see them. And so we looked for their facial, you know, their facial reactions to things. We looked to their participation and engagement to tell us how we were doing. Well, now I, I'm, it's a point in time that I'm connecting with employees. And so given whatever's happening in their life or that day, I can't gauge that anymore. So now I've got to find a way to get our employees to speak. So when you talk about that um, consumer grade thing, I think that's the voice of the employee. You know, that's that's when those pulse surveys really matter. And we even did some around inclusion during that same time to find out, you know, if we're losing some of the inclusion stuff, because many companies had ERGs or diversity networks that people felt were part of their family. And that's how they connected and, you know, did activities. And those were cut off from people that, and, you know, and everything went virtual. The other thing that that virtual experience did was emphasize uh, the importance of technology. I mean, we're all now interacting with one another via technology in many cases. And there was a report recently by Aptitude Research that found that 60%, so almost two-thirds of recruiters, said they were unhappy with the integration of technology in their organizations. Um, and I, I think that underscores a point that uh, implementation is just as important as the acquisition of technology. Uh, in fact, it may be even more important because you can have all the most powerful resources in the world at your disposal, but if they aren't integrated into a seamless operation in the tech stack, um, and if they don't actually deliver the kinds of capabilities they were supposed to deliver, and equally as important, if the changes they impose on the organization are uncomfortable or a poor fit with recruiters, then you're not going to see either the key performance uh, indicators showing a, a, a performance improvement, which is why you bought the stuff in the first place. And secondly, the company's not going to get the return on investment it deserves from, from the technology. So I think, I, I, I think just making sure that your technology, that you not only have the technology, but that it's properly implemented is very important. I also think adoption. So I'll say this. Um, in the, in the pre-COVID world, most of my managers wanted face-to-face -face candidates want to see interview face-to-face -face candidates. They wanted them to come to a location. They wanted to meet them, all of that. We always had technology for that. We always had the ability because most of my recruiters did virtual interviews. But it was, a, it was a perception issue there around that connection was more valuable or more meaningful than just connecting with them, you know, by technology. There are a lot of other technology tools that I just, it was, it was interesting. When we went completely remote for a period of time, we had to re-educate our managers on technology that they'd had for some time. This wasn't new technology, this was existing technology because I had a you know, portion of my organization that dealt in emails. 
And then I had, you know, my, I'm going to say younger technology groups, not age-wise, but the technology was newer. They were doing everything on, on Teams. They lived on Teams. And so you had to merge the two cultures when we went remote. So sometimes it's just using existing technology and getting people comfortable with it and understanding. Like we did a lot of virtual meetings, you know, kickoffs for, 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 for things. Even one of my groups said that, you know, most of their sales leads would come from conferences. And when conferences went away, they realized that they didn't lose any business. They just moved to a different model of, of connecting with new customers. But they had never gone down that route because they always used these events to do things. So I think that adoption of technology was the hardest piece we had to move to. In addition to it was it was surprising how many wallets opened for new technology to be approved in probably the quickest time frame in history. Yeah. Well, and and I think there's a lot of that technology, uh, sad to say, that is sitting on the shelf and either unused or unused to its full cap- capacity because of the implementation challenge. Okay, so let's move to the the third of the three trends we're going to cover, uh, inclusivity, unleashing the power of all. And the research report shows that diverse and inclusive teams are better at solving complex problems, they're more innovative, and they make better decisions 87% of the time. Problem is that fewer than a third, 32%, are actually going out and purposely trying to create diverse work teams to drive performance. And just 42% are developing their leaders to be more inclusive. And obviously, leaders set the tone, set the culture of the organization. So here's the question. You know, we have this acronym that we're all throwing around now, DE&I or DEI&B. Uh, and, you know, it's become much more, um, I don't I don't want to be too pejorative here, much more fashionable to talk about this issue. But we have to ask ourselves, given that data, is anything really different? Is, is any, are we really moving the needle in terms of opening up the whole population to opportunities in the world of work? I'm going to say a couple of things. So I did diversity back in the 90s when we knew it was coming. And all and back then, it was for getting people to acknowledge that the world of work was going to change service economy, net white, interest, net white male interest to the workforce would be less, all of that. So you had to believe in what was what was coming. And you had to believe it was the right thing for your business because diversity has a business impact and a return on investment. Um, and it was hard work. That many companies could never get to was the accountability of putting measures in place to make inclusivity a part of the culture. And the second piece that, that didn't happen was the DNI people of my generation being at the table. Most times we had to pull up a chair in a conversation and put it out there. What I've seen in the last three years is one, the conversation is starting at a different place. People are understanding the conversation is necessary and they're raising their hand when they don't understand why. They don't understand why. Um, so I think that is different this time around. The other thing is I don't think it's unusual now for accountability measures to be asked for, right? So accountability measures from our employees around how they engage with others, accountability around our leaders in terms of, of, of attraction and promotion and all of that. I think that whole framework 
um, has changed for the better. I saw more DNI roles created in the last year than I've ever seen before. And I've seen a lot of these roles be direct reports to the CEO. And so it's at a higher level. So I think it's on everyone's radar. I'm hoping it will now be a part of the business strategic goals. And so people will start to get rewarded based upon how they move the needle. So I don't believe anything happens overnight, which is another another interesting thing, is that um, in the conversations of the 90s, the belief was if something changes, somebody loses. But there's a, there's a win-lose phenomenon there. I think in this conversation, it talks about win-win. Uh, and so it's a, it's, a different, it's a different piece. Have I seen, like, there's some interesting emails out there, interesting posts out there on LinkedIn in the last two years where people have said stuff like, don't show me your, your diversity and inclusion statement or values. Show me your leadership team pictures. Show me, you know, if you want to put your photos out there on your website, let me see, you know, show me that it's real for you. Um, and I think those things are, are now coming more into play. Well, unfortunately, this is a very big topic, obviously, and we don't have the uh, any more time to cover it. Um, I do want to mention that uh, the research report that we're going to cover for our next show is the pandemic and gender disparities in the U.S. workforce from Pew Research. That will carry on with our discussion of inclusivity. So we'll be sure to uh, cover that in additional depth the next time around. This is Peter Weddle and Shalila Gray thanking you for joining us for Start Smart, the podcast that focuses on research and the facts in talent acquisition. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye-bye now. That concludes this episode of Start Smart. Thanks very much for joining us and come back for our next episodes on the latest research that will help you shape your talent acquisition with the facts. See you then.